If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. If you really want to be successful in anything, and successful means selling your ideas, you have to understand what people need and what people want. How do you teach innovation? That's a question which came up during the Future of Engineering Education panel at the 2018 Sensors Expo and Conference in San Jose. And that's a question to which engineer, educator, and strategic marketing consultant Roger Grace continues to provide answers. Roger is founder and president of marketing consulting firm Roger Grace Associates, which he founded in 1982 to provide marketing services to the worldwide high technology community. And on Thursday, June 27th, Roger will once again be moderating the Future of Engineering Education panel at the 2019 edition of Sensors Expo and Conference. Roger, as a student yourself, what captured your imagination first, engineering or entrepreneurship? Well, let's say this. When I was in undergraduate school, and I graduated undergraduate school in 1966, the word entrepreneur was basically a street in Paris right next to a friend's house. And there was no such thing as entrepreneurs in 1966 when I, uh, you know, if it was, it was a French word. So the bottom line is, by default, I just became an engineer. You know, my parents bought me this, like, Bentley version of Rector set when I was a little boy. And I still have, I'm, I'm at my parents' house right now in Boston, as a matter of fact. I'm sure that the, if I wanted to go into the basement, I'm sure I could find the Erector set. And it was this monstrous Erector set. You know what an Erector set is? I do, a building set, like I saw when I was a kid. Yeah, it's like little pieces of metal with screws and nuts and things of that sort. And you build all kinds of things. And I remember building this bridge. I built a bridge that actually went up and went down with a little motor. And, you know, and then we had Lincoln Logs. There was no such thing as Legos, but we had Lincoln Logs and Erector sets. And I was just fascinated by all this stuff. And when it came time, my mother said, well, what do you want to do when you grow up, that kind of thing? I said, I want to be a doctor or I want to be an engineer. And she said, that's interesting. I said, but, you know, I'm thinking about this, and I don't really like the sight of blood. So I think by default I'm going to be an engineer. So, you know, in high school I took physics and I really loved physics. I loved Newtonian dynamic, not nuclear physics, but physics of motion. And I really, really liked physics. And I went to Northeastern and was a electrical engineering student. And, and that was kind of the beginning of my journey as an engineer. And that was you know, 1961 when I entered the freshman class at Northeastern here in Boston. How do you transform yourself, not having grown up with entrepreneurship, and as you say, it's a street in Paris, but how do you transform yourself into a marketing specialist, as your material says, from being an electrical engineer? Yeah, well, when I was an engineer, first at Raytheon and then at Ford Aerospace, especially at Ford Aerospace, I was a project guy, and I basically ran projects, meaning I had... Even though I had design responsibility because I was a design engineer, I, the natural evolution of engineering people is to get bigger and bigger teams. 
you know, from doing it by yourself and then all of a sudden having a team and then, you know, becoming a project engineer, which I was. And then after that, you become like a program manager. And that's kind of the evolution of aerospace, typically. In those days, there was no Google and Apple and and stuff like that. It was Raytheon and Ford Aerospace and McDonnell Douglas and TRW. And anybody that graduated from engineering school, 90% of these engineering students went to work for aerospace companies. That is not the situation today. It's totally different. I'd say a minority of college graduates go to work for Raytheon and TRW and Northrop Grumman and et cetera, et cetera. I guess that's just the way the whole world of engineering has evolved. But I started to find out that what I really liked doing was not the design work, but was the proposal writing and writing these proposals for these various systems that the government would be buying. And then the other thing I really liked doing is making presentations when we were working with Jet Propulsion Laboratory on some Viking Orbiter 75 spacecraft. I ran a group developing some telecommunication systems for this Viking Orbiter spacecraft, and I ended up getting up there and presenting to the people at Jet Propulsion Laboratory who we were contracted to, the progress of the results of the design work and the schedules and the costs and all this other stuff. And that's what I really started to like to do. I really like to make presentations and I really like to manage projects. And I realized that being a design engineer for the rest of my life is not what I wanted to do. So I started to to make the transition and then decided to do the MBA program at Berkeley in the evening. So I really knew that I wanted to not be in a design engineering role and wanted to be in a business role. And then when I applied to be a, when I finally came to the realization that it's time to make a move, I went to the vice president of marketing at Ford Aerospace, who happened to be a friend of a friend, and I got the introduction. And I said, you know, I'm this guy with this great technical background and master's degree in electrical engineering and enrolled in the Berkeley MBA program and, you know, doing a good job. And I realized I want to do marketing. And he gave me, he gave me the exam. The verbal exam was three questions. Number one, did you go to a military academy? I said, no, I went to Northeastern University Engineering School. Second one was, did your father, was your father an officer? I said, no, my father was not an officer, but he served in World War II. And the third one was, do you have friends in Washington? I said, yeah, a lot of the guys that I went to school with and hung around with in my neighborhood went to Boston College and went to Washington, and now they're in the diplomatic corps. They're in the State Department. A bunch of them got law degrees. They were in the Department of the Interior, and et cetera, et cetera. And they said, anybody in the Defense Department? I go, no, I failed the exam. The reason I failed the exam was Ford Aerospace wanted somebody who could fly down to Washington and hobnob with like one of my West Point pals, who now was a colonel or something like that, and be able to influence major defense contracts for Ford Aerospace. So I realized that this is not going to work. I started looking for a job, and I got hired by a company that was acquired by Hewlett-Packard, and I became an applications engineer. And that was kind of my first real formal move. My title was marketing engineer, but my job was really an applications engineer. And 
to go out to the field and talk to people and try to understand what their systems were all about and try to help them solve their system problems with my company's products. So that was, you know, I did that for several years. And then through one of my friends, he connected me into a company called Foxborough ICT. And Foxborough ICT was a company doing sensors. And that was my first exposure to sensors. And I was hired by Don at Foxborough ICT to be his marketing manager. And that was my really full, first full-time marketing job as the marketing manager for Foxborough ICT in San Jose, California, selling pressure sensors that were MEMS, microelectromechanical systems. And that was like 40, 40 years ago. So that's kind of my evolution. But, you know, when you really look at this dot, most marketing people and technology went through the same thing that I did. They were engineers, and then they became applications people, and then they became marketing and salespeople. So that's kind of the evolution. They all have engineering backgrounds. I was very fortunate that I spent 15 years as a designer. Not a lot of people are design engineers that are now marketing people, but I was a design engineer, and I just realized that I didn't want to do it anymore, and I wanted to do something that was more people-oriented and more dynamic, and that's why I moved into marketing. And fast forward to today, at Sensors Expo, you are going to be moderating the Future of Engineering Education panel. I've had the privilege of hearing this twice in the past. This is going to be a great one. Would you tell me about your 2019 panel, please? Sure. Well, I, in preparation of this meeting, I was kind of going through my conversations with all the people on the panel. We have six people on the panel, and the panel's broken up typically, and this is my third year doing this in San Jose for the people at Questex, because I think the people at Questex, you know, I, I take my hat off to them because they're trying to become much more, let's call it, societally connected. And they have a session called WISE, W-I-S-E, Women in Sensor Engineering. I put the first one together for them, and now they have some other people doing that, some ladies doing it, and they're doing the future of engineering education. So they realize that, that the future is got to be more socially connected, and that means more women, more STEM, more education. And I, I was an adjunct faculty member at UC Berkeley from 1990 to 2003, and I taught in the School of Engineering, and I did not teach my area of expertise is electromagnetic wave propagation, but I didn't teach that. I taught business plans. So I team taught this class, upper division engineering elective class with two of my colleagues, and I taught marketing, one taught intellectual property, and one taught finance. And the whole purpose here was to teach these students how to develop business plans and to go out and talk to investors and get money and start companies. And that whole concept of entrepreneurship get back to your question, that whole concept of entrepreneurship is going to be one of the topics that we're going to talk about in this session. And when you look at who's going to be on this panel, I've got two of my friends that are engineers, and uh, Rob Podoloff at TechScan in Boston, who, who I was with last week, and Todd Christensen, very dear friend who serves on the board of this organization that I founded and am on the board of directors of called Micro and Nanotechnology Commercialization Education Foundation. 
And Todd is truly an entrepreneur. He started several companies. Rob Podoloff is truly an entrepreneur. He started TechScan. And these guys are just really top-notch, brilliant engineering people. I have two students. Both of these students are Northeastern students. One's an undergraduate and one's a graduate. And then I have two people from the academic world. I have Don Ghirardelli from Northeastern, who is running the San Francisco San Jose campus. And we have another individual from the University of Arizona. And the theme here is alternative approaches. That's going to be the theme of this session. And by alternative or non-traditional approaches, as our colleague from the University of uh, Arizona has said, constitutes several different approaches, one of which is co-op, cooperative education. So we have three people, we have four people who will talk about co-op. Me, because I was a co-op student as an undergraduate and a Raytheon fellow in graduate school. Don, who is a Northeastern person and the two students. And co-op education is a process where there is an alternating of academic coursework and in the field engineering. And you saw from that article that was published in the Northeastern Engineering magazine, you know, my feelings about co-op. I felt that my co-op job as an undergraduate student was absolutely incredible. I was designing circuits as a junior in college, you know, a job that people two years out of college probably get to. I was designing circuits as a student, and my circuits were going into weapons of mass destruction at the time. And by the time I got out of undergraduate school, I had two-plus solid years of engineering design experience and another year and a half of technician experience. And I think to be a good engineer, you have to be a good technician, because if you don't know how to measure things, you don't know what's going on with the device that you're trying to design or the system you're trying to design. So, you know, the typical co-op job at AFCO Missile Systems was you come in, you learn how to be a technician, you take lots of measurements, and you evolve into a design engineer. And I think that that co-op program at Northeastern and at University of Cincinnati and many other schools have adopted that approach is really the best way to go about becoming an engineer, because by the time you graduate, you know what it's like to be an engineer. It's not like going to four years of undergraduate school and then going out and finding a job, and you go, is this what engineers do? Hmm. I don't want to do this. I want to go to business school and become a venture capitalist or something like that. But by doing this work-related education, it really prepares you. And if you look at what happens at Northeastern, and I'm a big Northeastern devotee and advocate, as you can tell, is, and I'm very close to the dean, the engineering dean, and that is Nadine tells me, and it's published, that 99% of the graduating engineering students have jobs in related fields nine months after graduation. That's from the ones that don't go to graduate school. But the ones that work, 99% find jobs. Now, where else can you find somebody who goes to school, gets out with an undergraduate degree, and 99% of those people get jobs? And when you find engineering jobs, engineering jobs are very well-paying jobs. You know, this engineering jobs are really well-paying jobs. 
so this co-op education program to me is really, really, really a valuable way to go. Now, Todd Christensen, I've asked him to talk about Votech, you know, vocational technical, because not everybody's going to go to college. And engineering education to me is not BS, MS, PhD. It's anything that has to do with engineering. And we need technicians, and a lot of people don't want to do a bachelor's degree. They just want to be a technician. And we just don't spend a lot of time, in my opinion, and we'll talk more about Votech, preparing students who don't want to get degrees to be able to get into the engineering community as technicians to test things, to process wafers if you're in the semiconductor business, and to do all these things that I consider to be part of the infrastructure of engineering. There needs to be education for those people because engineers do the design work and technicians do the testing, typically. So he's going to talk about that. The other thing that's going to be talked about will be adult education. And the people at Northeastern will talk about that, Don Giardelli and my colleague from the University of Arizona. And the fact of the matter is when a lot of people just don't go to graduate school days because it's unaffordable. I was fortunate because I did my first year of graduate school at night. And it killed me. And I did my MBA program at night, and it killed me. But to be able to go to a program at night is the only viable way for a lot of people to get advanced degrees because they can't afford not to work. And Northeastern and Don Gardelli and the University of Arizona person will be talking about education in a, quote, non-traditional, non-day program, and how to get people who may be in a certain area of work that want to move. Let's say you're doing something and you want to be in robotics or you want to be in artificial intelligence, and you're not in artificial intelligence. So how do you get into artificial intelligence? Well, you got to take a whole bunch of classes. And Northeastern is offering these kinds of classes, and University of Arizona is offering these kinds of classes because these are very work-related kinds of classes that will help people get better jobs, make more money, have a better quality of life. And my feeling is engineering education really starts from a pragmatic point of view. I'm a very pragmatic guy, and it's all about how to find jobs And hopefully these jobs are jobs that will result in enhancement of the quality of life of the ecosphere. You know, artificial intelligence or whatever it may be, uh, e-health, you know, anything that has to do with enhancing the quality of life for the citizens of the world, in my opinion, is really what engineers' jobs need to focus on. And I think these evening programs that are being offered by different universities are the way to do it, where in my graduate program, when I was going to graduate business school, my, you know, Hewlett Packard paid for my education. And a lot of companies pay full or partial graduate programs. And I think it's very important that people continue their education, not necessarily full-time days, but in any way that they can. And I think 
that non-traditional education is going to be a key element of this program. And then finally, to talk about entrepreneurship, when I was teaching from 1990 to 2003, certainly entrepreneurship was alive and well. Well, you know, 1990 versus 1961 is 30 years. That's eight generations. Things changed dramatically. Silicon Valley was not the Silicon Valley in 1990 as it was in 1970 when I arrived there. And all these students, I can tell you this, all these students are into not working for Hewlett Packard or not working for Google. They want to start their own companies. So this whole concept of entrepreneurship, and I'm very fortunate because I live equidistant from MIT and Harvard, and I can walk to each of those schools in 20 minutes. That's where I grew up. I grew up in the epicenter of higher education here in Massachusetts, and all these super smart young people are people I walk by every day as I go down and have breakfast or whatever. And in San Francisco, I, I live one block away from Mark Zuckerberg in the Mission District. And you go to the coffee shop, and everybody's down in the coffee shop working on their computer. There's so much fervor. Keyword is fervor. There's so much passion and fervor with young people today that they don't want to have jobs. They want to start their own companies. And we're going to talk about the role, and this is going to be an opinion thing. You know, everyone's going to have their own opinion of whether or not we should be teaching entrepreneurship in schools. I believe we should. Northeastern's got a very solid entrepreneurship program, lots of coursework and entrepreneurship, and I believe that there should be some courses, and I would think that they should be, say, upper division electives, like the one that I taught E110 at Berkeley, so people can pick and choose. If they want to go to work for Lockheed Martin, well, they can be entrepreneurs versus entrepreneurs. So this whole concept of selling people ideas is what I think is the idea of supporting entrepreneurship. And unless you can get people to understand what you're trying to do and how this, what you're trying to do can affect the life of the world, you'll never be successful. And mechanisms that will help teach these students the mechanisms and the processes by which they can learn how to convince people to do what they want them to do, i.e. give them a bunch of money. So you need to teach them about communication skills. And we were having dinner last night, and, and we went to a person's house afterwards to have dessert. And one of the people basically said the following, that she happened to be a Northeastern undergraduate person. And she said, What's happening is these young people don't know how to communicate. And one of the reasons is they get so connected with texting, they don't want to talk to people. And I can tell you that if you're going to get $30 million from a venture capitalist, you've got to talk to them. You're not going to text Joe Smith or Barbara Brown down at Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park and say, we need $30 mil. You think you can afford it? You know, you're going to spend a lot of time pitching them, sending them business plans, doing market research, letting them know that you know how to communicate and find business, because it's all about finding business. If you can't create business and get people to buy your products, your company's going to fail. And it's going to be all about the people on the team that know how to communicate and communicate effectively, verbally, visually, all that concept of communication. And our concern, you know, we older people, 
like for at that dinner last night, are concerned about that these high school students that are apparently not as adept at verbal communication as we believe we were because we didn't have texting. We had to write essays. We had to call people. We had to talk to people. And it wasn't all about tweeting. It was about conversation. So that's kind of where we're going to go. So the two, to summarize, the two big things that we're going to talk about, and certainly the audience is going to have a great deal to say about this because they're going to ask questions. And 50% of the time of this session will be Q&A. So each of the six presenters will have five minutes to give opinions of their thoughts on the future of engineering education. And then we're going to encourage everybody in the audience, including you, to fill out a three-by-five note card and to give it to one of the people at Sensors Expo who will be collecting these things. And I will be picking the ones that I think might find the more controversial responses and everybody will have a chance to respond to these questions that come off the floor. And we really want audience participation maximized at detail end of this session. So much of what you've said strikes me as being relevant not just to engineers, but makers, selling people ideas, having to communicate. What if somebody listening is an arts person as opposed to an engineer? What are some of the most important lessons for them, in addition to selling people ideas and communications, that they might take away from this panel? Yeah, well, great question. And I think it comes down to bottom line, and I've written a an eight-part series that appeared in Census Magazine, and it was about marketing. Census marketing, oxymoron or opportunity, <laughs> was the title of this series, this eight-part series. And one of the key elements here, and in this series, I interviewed about 40 people. This was an interview of about 40 people and with my comments interspersed. And the bottom line is the key phrase, listening to the voice of the customer. Now, when you talk about arts, you know, we can talk about performing arts. We can talk about ballet. We can talk about symphony. We can talk about opera. We can talk about things like that. We can talk about visual arts. We can talk about people that paint and sculpt and things of that sort. But I think what it's all about is if you really want to be successful in anything, and successful means selling your ideas, you have to understand what people need and what people want. And that's what this whole concept of listening to the voice of the customer is all about. So in other words, when I was teaching this class at Berkeley, People were not just selling engineering things. They were selling everything, apps. They were selling apps for phones. And I would tell them all to go down to Emeryville, which is right down the street from Berkeley, to the shopping center and stand out in front of Best Buy with a clipboard and a Berkeley sweatshirt. And there'd be you know, two or three students there with their Berkeley sweatshirts. And they would go up to people and say, we're Berkeley students. Would you mind answering a couple of questions? Who's going to say no to a Berkeley student that wants to ask some questions? Right? Of course. What would you like? I'll spend five minutes with you. And the whole thing is trying to understand what those people, what they need to make their lives better. Now, let's say from an artistic point of view, several of my friends are photographers or painters. And what it comes down to is if you just want to paint for your own self-edification, that's one thing. If you want to paint 
to sell the paintings and make money, that's a different story. So the thing is, if, you know, I happen to like old masters things, you know, not that I can afford to get a Rembrandt painting, but, you know, I have some Rembrandt etchings because I like Rembrandt. So I don't think you're going to see too many people doing Rembrandt or Dora-like things today because people don't buy that. But people buy things that are much more, say, colorful and higher energy. So if you want to sell art, I would say you listen to the voice of the customer. You go to art galleries. You see what's selling. You look at prices for what's going on. You do market research. So the bottom line of everything, in my opinion, because I'm a marketing guy, a market research guy, is you have to understand what people want to buy. Now, again, if you just want to play the violin because you like to play the violin, that's one thing. But if you want to play the violin and make money, you have to understand what people want to listen to and where to go to get to the people that want to listen to what you want to play. So it's all about, in my opinion, marketing. It's all about marketing. And a famous article that happened to find its way into Harvard Business Review by a famous Silicon Valley guy, and the name of the article is Marketing is All There Is. That's the name of the article. I reference it quite frequently. I don't totally agree with this guy, but no matter what you're selling, you got to understand what people want to buy and how you compare to everybody else, what's different and unique about your art versus somebody else's art. And the other thing, too, is everybody's got to get gratification for what they do. I mean, I happen to love to work with people, you know, entrepreneurs especially, and start up companies and get them to be famous and help them to make a lot of money and do all these things. And the name of the game is you need to understand who's going to buy it and what the competition is. And then finally, what are your unique competencies that will make your company better than everybody else's? And I think if you're going to, to be a painter, that's the same thing. I don't know about voice people, you know, like the latest Pavarotti kind of person. That's a tough business. You know, anybody in performing arts, whether you're playing the cello, you're, you know, I went to the Boston Symphony on Friday night. And it's a lovely, lovely young lady, 15 years old, playing the cello. I thought I was listening to Yo-Yo Ma. She was just incredible. And hopefully she'll be successful. She'll be the next Yo-Yo Ma. But, you know, there aren't a lot of Yo-Yo Ma's in this world. And there are a lot more engineers than Yo-Yo Ma's. (laughs) And to be one of these, you know, incredible performing arts people, there aren't a lot of spaces there. So it's a tough road to hold if you want to be a performing arts person, if you want to be a creative person and kind of look back in history and how impoverished people like Mozart were or Renoir or, you know, many of these famous painters. And it takes probably generations before people get that Renoir and the Impressionists had something really unique. But it didn't help Renoir when he was, you know, running around southern France and painting outside You know, he needed money for his paint, and he was lucky if he could buy bread and wine for his meals. But you got to love what you do, and hopefully you can make money on what you love. That's the real key. My grandfather, who emigrated from Portugal in the late 1800s, told my dad 
that if you love what you do, it's not work. And that's the way I look at things. And money, money and wealth comes to you because you love what you do and you help people get, you know, you, you give people what they want and satisfy their needs for whatever it is, whether it's listening to a beautiful concerto or looking at a beautiful scene or a beautiful piece of sculpture. If you can make people happy, I believe that wealth will come to you both in terms of dollars and in personal gratification in your ability to satisfy that person's need. As we look forward to his panel on Thursday, June 27th, Roger offered a preview of one question he very well may ask his panelists. One question that I typically ask my panel is, what classes did you find in your engineering curricula were the most beneficial to you in where you are today in your professional career. What if I asked you that question right now? I would say I had so many great classes. It's hard. I would say engineering writing. It was an upper division engineering class elective, but you know, it was kind of in my wheelhouse because I just wanted not to be solving equations all the time. It was kind of very soft, but it was all about communication. And I think the successful People that can communicate well are the people that are going to be successful. And I think that that engineering writing, and I write a lot. I write lots of articles for different magazines and such. And I think that engineering writing was a very, very enabling course that I took in upper division engineering school at Northeastern. So, you know, that was a major contribution to me. Again, it all comes back to communication, just like you were saying. Yeah, communication is key. And going back to the discussion last night over dessert, the concern that we have over the, quote, young people who are in high school, who are in junior high, and even before that, and getting their face out of cell phones and texting and getting on the phone and talking to people and being able to listen to their voice and the intonation of their voice and the ability to communicate in an effective fashion is really, really critical. And unless we have that, we're not serving our students properly. We need to teach them how to communicate effectively, and that's, that's key. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what do you want them to take away from you and your work? Serving society. I think, and I end all of my presentations and lectures with that statement, and I think that engineers are blessed with the ability to create. Most engineers are creators, and I think to create for the betterment of society and to, to kind of look back at this one very famous guy, Peter Diamantis, who wrote this book, Abundance. And Peter Diamantis' premise is that with the knowledge that exists in our society today, with all these brilliant men and women that come out of school, you don't have to have engineering degrees, but just be brilliant and creative, that they have the resources to be able to solve a lot of the societal problems that we have in terms of quality of food and ample food and quality of medical care and pollution and energy conservation. All these big societal things, these are the things that I believe that people need to address and apply their time, talents, and treasures to solve these societal problems vis-a-vis their knowledge of creativity and entrepreneurship. 
And I really believe that. And most of the people that I work with, my clients, work in areas that are supporting that basic philosophy. Roger, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You and I have been listening to Roger Grace, president of Roger Grace Associates in Naples, Florida. If you're attending Sensors Expo and Conference, which runs June 25th through 27th in San Jose, be sure to check out Roger's Future of Engineering Education panel. It'll be happening at noon on Thursday, June 27th at McInerney Convention Center. You'll find more information and a conference schedule on SensorsExpo.com. That's SensorsExpo.com. Meanwhile, for more information about what Roger Grace Associates is doing, or to see some of the articles and papers Roger has written, check out rgrace.com. That's rgrace.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.